0: Okay, welcome to another episode of the Rubber League Outsiders. My name's Craig.
1: And my name's Carl.
0: And in this episode, we're going to chat to a couple of lads that basically Carl's dragged together um, and have, you know, for, for mental health day. And first thing I've got to say is that if you are a little bit sensitive to, you know, comments about suicide, about drug, alcohol, and um, that kind of stuff, or just, you know, compulsive, obsessive behavior, anything like that, we're going to go quite deep Mm. into that. So I need to give you a little bit of a warning over that. However, what I've also got to say is that, um, the power of the conversation that we have right now, I I can still feel it now. You know, the the guys have just got up and left and, and they've definitely changed my thought process after the conversation that they've had. I don't know what you thought, Carl, about the whole thing.
1: uh, I think that word you just said their power, it was very, very powerful episode. Um, some of the stuff the guy said really took me by surprise. Um, I don't think I was quite prepared for discussing what we did discuss. Um, but, you know, I think if this episode can help people, then it's, you know, it's played a part.
0: So we're going to hear from um, Dan Robinson, who is a player at the Telford Raiders, and also his friend George Whitaker, and uh, both very, very courageously share their their um, their battles, both very, very different, but some similarities in their story. So we're going to jump into that. Anything else, Carl? before we, we get into it?
1: No, just uh, like I say, like, like what I've already said, um, it, it's a very powerful episode and, and I hope it will help people if that's, you know, that's the intention.
0: Okay, so all that being said, let's dive into it. We we're going to lean heavily into mental health. By the time this episode goes out, it will be Mental Health Day, and it's only right with the number of young men um, that are that are taking their own lives and really struggling nowadays. That we we talk about that. And rugby league is developing a great community, uh, backing each other, um, where you know it's a lot of young lads together in a community and and chatting about stuff. So today we're going to explore that. We've got two incredible guests in George Whitaker and Dan Robinson, both rugby players. George, am I right in thinking you're going to play a league next year? Is, oh, that, yeah. is that the same? Oh, you are. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was a joke, Dan. No, I thought no, that, that was a joke. A, yeah, no, that's amazing. I've convinced him. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about rugby and perhaps how that's helped, but also just dive into your own stories. And and just tell me, Dan, perhaps if you start us off, what by sharing your story, and, and I know you've done this before, both on social media and, and the other groups that you're involved in, like how, how has that helped? Has it helped?
2: I think um, it's instigated conversations and I think it's helped other people open up a little bit, even if it's just the beginning. Um, I'm not expecting people to sort of give me their life story or anything like that. Um, but if they recognise that they're not alone in, in some of the things that they're feeling. And I think if like, you know, a 16 stone rugby player can s- sit there and say, you know, I was vulnerable, I was scared, I was struggling. You know, and these are the things that help me. I'm not saying that's definitely going to help you, but these are the things that um, have helped me. Then it just it promotes that conversation. It maybe offers them an outlet that they haven't thought of, and just that feeling of I'm not alone um, can be so powerful. So I think, yeah, I think it has um, to an extent. I'm, I'm no social media guru. I haven't you know um, paid for any sort of promotions or anything like that. But my, my motto is always: if it helps one person, then that you know it's done its job.
1: And hopefully that's what we're looking to achieve today, isn't it? So, George, you want to sort of give us a, an idea why you've come on the sofa and what you sort of... Well, Dan, really. <laughs> <I think> <laughs> <laughs> now, my, um, my sort
3: of trauma's that are more recent. Yeah. I've fairly recently come out the other end of it sort of thing. And so I spoke to Dan about it, and he said, it'd be a good idea if we sort of come together and did something on TikTok or whatever. And then in the end, he's reached out to you guys to come on here. Because... Prior to all my problems recently, I was like, big guy, like big person. at work, the gym, rugby club, all that stuff. And you never think that something could trigger me to go down the route I went down and change me as it did. And I just think it shows that anyone can be affected and it doesn't matter who you are. And it's amazing how many people through my work or the gym or whatever, when I've come back to life, have said they've had loads of problems previously. And again, you. Big guys, you'd never think they'd have the thoughts, they'd had all the experiences and all that sort of stuff. So I think of me sharing what I've been through, it helps them to, again, talk about what they've been through. So it's like therapy for both sides, really.
0: So I think, you know, obviously there are people listening now going, holy fuck, you know, what what is these guys' stories? So can we can we dive into that a little bit? And just, you know, I don't, I don't know where the natural place to start is, you know, at what point or whatever, and I don't know how... Comfortable you are talking about it, but Dan, should we? you want to kick us off and just tell us a little bit about your, your history? And...
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so like I said to the guys before we even started recording, I'm a very open book and I think it's, it's important for me to not sugarcoat any part of my journey uh, because that is my journey and it's the reality of things. I think if we try and hide away and ignore certain things that happen in life then they never get dealt with, we don't learn pathways for people to become better, you know, mm. um, if we ignore the problem in the first place. Um, I had a pretty good young childhood. I didn't have any issues with my mental health, you know, for up until the age of eleven, really. Um, when I went to senior school, I um, I used to get the train to school, and um, there was a, there was a man that was, he sort of manipulated me, and I ended up being sexually abused for a few years. Um, I've only learned to talk about that in the last year and a half, so. For most of my life, I kept that secret from my parents, my family, friends, anyone. Nobody knew about it other than me. And it was sort of a hell of a weight to carry. Um, And by the age of 14, I I was really struggling. So I was sitting in my room every night, sort of crying, um, praying for the pain to go away or something to take that pain away. Um,
0: Sorry, Dan, are you talking like the mental pain or physical pain or both?
2: (sighs) Both, really. Um... I wouldn't say, yeah, it wasn't like constant physical pain, but I was, I, there was a lot of blaming myself, even though I'm, I'm still a child, do you know what I mean? And and how am I going to you know, fight off a fully grown man or, and I didn't fully understand it either, really. I didn't understand how I was being manipulated and things like that. Mm. Um, when I look back now, it's a lot easier to see some of those signs and, and, and things like that. But yeah, I think I, there was a lot of why me, why is this happening to me? Um, How do I deal with it? If I tell my parents about it, and this is going on, my genuine fear in my head was, well, my dad's going to end up in prison because he's going to go commit a murder to to this person, and he's going to end up in prison. And that's a hell of a weight for a young person to carry, thinking I've got to hold on to this because I'm scared of what might happen to my dad and my mum or their reaction, and it would break their hearts You know, to know that was happening to their son. Um, And believe me, even a year and a half ago, having that conversation with my parents was one of the hardest um, conversations I've ever had in my life, you know, and, and sitting them down and talking to them about it, and it was really, really emotional, you know. We've um, we've spoke about you know avenues and what I could have done about it now, you know, now that I've started talking about it, and we came to a decision about what I wanted to do, um, and a lot of that for me was just to move on, you know. I, I dealt with it through therapy and counselling, yeah. but I could have looked through police routes and things like that to try and track the person down and do something about it, but for me it was about how can i move on and then help others in this situation rather than dragging myself back into the situation i know there's a lot of people that might think well you've got to go after this person in case they're still out there and things like that my hope is they're not still out there doing that um the chances of finding them would be very slim anyway i'm pretty sure they gave me a fake alias and that sort of yeah um and also for my personal well-being you know i got myself into a good space finally you know over the last couple of years and i i really don't want to end up going back to the space that I was in before. Um, But yeah, so from the age of 14, I first discovered alcohol, you know, and and started drinking. And for the first time, it just took a bit of that pain away. It felt like someone had given me a warm blanket and a hug. And it it just became like a a learned behavior over time. I didn't instantly start becoming an alcoholic, you know, there Mm. and then. But I started to know if I wasn't feeling good or if I was struggling with something, it would take some of that pain away. and as I got older, that progressed to, you know, when I went to university or hanging around with, you know, the lads that near where I lived and stuff like that. You know, people start smoking weed and all that sort of stuff. I went to university and university was almost like a chemist shop of drugs. And once I experimented, like a lot of people do when they go to university and, you know, they go out into the big wide world and they experiment with all these things. And I, feel, I realized I could change the way I felt depending on what I was taking. So if I wanted to feel, you know, excited, full of confidence and all that sort of stuff... I could take stimulants and things like that. If I wanted to bring myself down and chill out, I could take, you know, depressants or, you know, just drinking and things like that. And it just, eventually, it sort of had this snowball effect where it took over my entire life. So while I was functioning for most of my adult life, I think COVID hit and I fell off a cliff. I was being paid to sit at home. And I think a lot of people struggle with that isolation anyway. Yeah. Yeah, And I went from, yeah, um, functioning to, completely non-functioning, struggling to leave the house, been awake for days and I'm scared of my own shadow, paranoid, um, drug-induced psychosis, all of those sort of things. You know, I got so bad at one point, I was so scared to leave the house, I'd uh, invented a pulley system from my window so my dealer would come to the, uh, <laughs> to the driveway outside and I'd lower money down in a bucket and he'd put the drugs in there and then I'd wheel it back up and it, it was just absolutely insane. And i just, yeah, you know, i was so scared of any footsteps. I was scared Sorry, I didn't mean it
1: laugh. but it's funny. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. I mean, I mean it's wait. A... I suppose when you look back at it now,
2: you, you <laughs> yeah, must think I, I do, and I I, I, I laugh about all this sort of stuff. I have a really dark sense of humor, as, and you'll find if you ever talk to a lot of people that are in recovery. Yeah, you know, they've got a really dark sense of humor about the things <laughs> they've gone through, and it's 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 really weird like that. But yeah, when I look back at some of the situations I put myself in and the things I was doing, like it was massively insane thinking. You know, so I was using drink to try and cheer myself up. But as we all know, alcohol is a depressant. Mm. But I was convinced in my own head the only thing that could get me through a day was drinking. Yeah. So, oh, this is the only thing that's making me happy. And even once I got to the point of suicide attempts, I was still convinced the drink was the only thing that was keeping me still here. So I was taking antidepressants and things like that, and they just weren't working because I'm putting a depressant in my system every single day. Yeah. So, you know, it it serves as fact you know you're taking a depressant it's not going to improve your mental state if you're drinking it every day yeah
0: I always remember a quote my dad was a heavy drinker and he always used to say there's nothing like a depressant to chase the blues away yeah. you know and it's exactly that isn't it you know you're leaning on that to try and cheer you up or to cheer you up you know it's having an effect or whatever but actually it's short term and on the, other, on the far side of it it's more depression
2: yeah it, it's, a, it's a really vicious circle you know um Anyone that starts drinking too much will recognize that thing of, oh, I need a drink. I'll go have a drink. And then the next day I start to feel rough. So you get people to say the hair of the dog, you know, and then they start to feel a little bit better again. Hmm. And then the next day the hangover's doubled down and then they're like, oh, I need something else. And that's exactly the same way it happens with different drugs as well and things like that. Your body suddenly starts to recognize the need for the, the, the instant rush or the instant gratification that it gives you, but then you pay for it later on. But... That draw for the instant gratification becomes stronger and stronger each time, and if you're not in a good place anyway, you know I I never, you know I would never go out and tell anyone or preach about not drinking or anything like that. You know I'd never tell people that go out to the pub and have a good time not to go and have a drink. I'm, I'm not one of those people in recovery that becomes preachy and lectures people, and it's not like that. But if you're not in a good space anyway, mm. and then you're putting substances and mind altering substances in your body, whatever goes up must come down and it then doubles down on any effect that you've had, you know, previously or any of those other feelings you were struggling with.
0: Yeah. Dan, I've got to say, I didn't expect that story. So thank you very much for,
1: No, no, I just want to jump in as well. I think that's really brave what you've just sort of shared with people, to be honest with you. Uh, We've only known each other less than a year. And I think the first time, the first time I ever met Dan was when we did the media day at Telford and, and we sort of, was going around and was sort of introducing people and, and it was just sort of, you know, tell me a little something about you and, and Dan sort of jumped in straight away with, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic and 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 then it sort of opened the room and then somebody else jumped in and said, oh, I'm a recover And before you know it, I was like, okay, there's, there's a lot of people here who, who have had some problems and I thought it was braver to share it then um, in front of a room full of people that you didn't really know, and, and what you've just told us now, I think yeah, you know, take my hat off to you. It's, you know, what you're trying to do and, and help people, it's you know, it's,
2: it's brilliant, really. Yeah, i you'd be amazed how many people have actually come to me since I've started talking about it. Or I work as a support worker now. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I give little bits of my own story. It's not about me. It's about the you know the clients and services that I work with. But sometimes if I think it's helpful, I'll give them little tidbits of my story. And things like that, and the amount of times it helps them open up and helps them on their journey is incredible because they just have that resonance and they feel like this person understands. Mm. You know, they they may not have been through the exact same situation, but they have an empathy towards what I'm going through. And I think that's really important.
0: It's really important. I think it's important now as we're talking about it. We we are going to loop back and we're going to talk about perhaps some some like coping mechanisms and strategies that people can use. But if this resonating with you, then you know stick with it because you know we, we are going to loop round to that. George, I'd be really keen to kind of get a bit from you as well, and uh, and hear about your about your story.
1: Where do
3: I start? Um, <laughs> mine's quite recent, really. So I was with my ex partner for ten years, engaged, house, all that business, and then I think it was about April this year. It was finished, like from her finishing it, and um, so we just moved. We'd been in the house previous, like, five years, and we moved to a big house, and... Well, yeah, life's sorted now, wasn't that. We was there for, sort of, like, seven months, and then it was... I did not really realised myself that it was, sort of, breaking down. Yeah. It wasn't going how it should. And then she'd said, come, like, the April time, sort of, it's finished, it's over. So I was out of the house, basically. And then... Um, didn't cope at all. Like, I'm really bad with change as a person anyway. Mm. So, like, the slightest thing changed my routine... I just lose my head. Like, if they move me somewhere at work, I just lose my shit. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I chuck tools around and all sorts of <laughs> So, that for me, losing my house, my home, my way of life, partner, all that, I just lost the plot, really. And um, I thought I was dealing with it all right, and then I, I moved to my sister's. I was sleeping in the conservatory, which wasn't great. And that doesn't sound great. It's not great at all, no. Earplugs and eye mask, all that. Could hear the birds at four a.m. Cars. It was lovely, night sleep. But um, and then I couldn't do that anymore because it was getting worse and worse. And I moved with a girl I went to school with. I'm still there now, but I've not spoke to her since school. But she, she, one of my mates had heard that she was in a position where she could have someone live with her, basically. And he said, "Oh, do you want, don't fancy George living?" There? She's like, "Yeah, yeah," but she didn't know to the extent that I was. So I was struggling with stuff yeah so we were in with her and then i developed a pacing problem through i don't know how it happened it just i just sort of it sort of trickled in where i just stopped like walking like back and forth like thinking and then it it got worse and worse so i was doing it a bit more in a day a bit more in a day a bit more in the day and uh i started on some antidepressants which I think I'd been on for four weeks, and then the doctor set up the dose, I did. And then my mum, bless her, thought, I'll go on Google, because he's not getting better yet. And then she read that there's all these side effects, and she said, oh, he's not getting better, he's got to come off them. And at this point, I wasn't really able to make decisions for myself, because I was just gone. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I'll just, whatever, I'll just go on what my mum says, sort of thing. And so she rang doctors or whatever, and they said, like to, to wean me off, it's like, don't take one this day, take one this day, don't take one this day, take one this day, then stop. Which is probably the worst thing you could do, because that's basically cold turkey. And you ain't supposed to do that. You're supposed to see your doctor and have them tell you properly. So then I basically, within a few days of that, I had like, massive withdrawal from it. And I wasn't sleeping. I was getting like an hour of sleep a night. And the pacing got worse and worse and worse. And then I got back on them. But I had to sort of the pacing business, I hadn't hadn't been fixed, it got worse and worse, and so then it was at a point where I was literally doing like 200,000 steps a day, like just back and forth, like it sounds crazy, doesn't it? And it is, honestly, I couldn't help it. I get up at 6am, and in the bedroom, I just start walking, back and forth in the bedroom, go downstairs about one o'clock, walk in the kitchen till five, then go to my mum and dad's, walk at theirs, until eight, go home until 1am and then go to sleep for about 4 months I was doing that was just and no way I just, you could, I just couldn't you could bri- break me. the cycle I, c- I couldn't sit down for like 30 seconds it was like my body was like get up get up get up get up get up nothing's alright right, get up get up I'd have to get up and start walking it, it got to a point where I dropped I was like 16 and a half stone like Jimmy and lad all, all this sort of stuff and I dropped to 12 stone and I was just there's nothing of me but I, like, I'd look at myself in the mirror I wouldn't recognise myself but while I was doing all this walking, I was thinking the same thoughts every single day over and over in my head: the things I should have done differently, things I shouldn't have said, I should have said. If I'd have done this, it'd have been all right, and all this stuff. And like, so almost like to the point where I was going in this kitchen where I am, like I was sweating like mad and just walked back and forwards, and like my head was rocking. If I'd have seen myself now, if I'd have seen myself now, what I was doing, I'd have gone: He is a lunatic. He needs <laughs> he needs putting somewhere because that ain't normal. Like, my feet were all, they're scarred now, my feet. My feet were all cut and bleeding and swollen, and it was horrific, but I just couldn't stop it. But I think, because I I, I'd bounced around doctors to begin with, trying to help me, because they were basically GPs, like, with how I was in the room with them, they're just mm. way out of the depth. They're like, I don't know what to do with this, basically. yeah. So he needs referring. So I'd had some various calls and, and all that sort of stuff. And in the end, I went to the same doctor where I'm from in Wenlock. And in the end, he sorted me out, basically, and just put me on the right course with the right medication and stuff. And then it sort of just clicked in the end. I just sort of stopped the walking. But what bringing it into rugby, what sort of I think was a turning point for me was... One of the lads, because he'd all messed me, hadn't you, flat out? And I was just wasn't talking to him and ignoring everyone because I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. I was out somewhere in Shrewsbury with a couple of mates. And one of the lads drove past, and he, as I was going into the car, he come to the car, not the window, like, and he was like, "I was like, oh no, God, he's gonna have a go at me. I've been ignoring him and all this and that." And he says, "Come on, get out." So I got out, and he gave me a big hug, and he just said, "I'm so happy to see you, mate. Like we're all are worried to death about you. I just want to know you're alright, sort of thing." And then I met him a couple of days later. I had a walk and a talk and a cry and all that business. And then from then, I just sort of, I went, I went back to where I'm, uh, where I'm living and I sat down with who I'm living with for the first time in months. I just looked through pictures of like rugby pictures and all that sort of stuff and I just thought, I miss all this. Like, why, why I've got to get back to myself and yeah. fix myself because I need this. And then like within a couple of days, I just wasn't doing the pace anymore.
0: Can I just can I just ask you both of you, if you could use like one word to describe your lowest point, what what would that word be? I know I'm just throwing at you now and you might need to kinda of think about that and
3: you, want to go first, <laughs> you go first well.
2: <laughs> I'm scared, I think. Yeah. More than anything. I think just a lack of understanding, you know, so my brain had turned on itself. So I was always intelligent, even from a young age. So my brain was one of my biggest assets, and then my brain had turned on myself, and I didn't understand what was happening with it, and I couldn't pull myself out of this funk. Um, and it got to a point where you know I didn't want to, I didn't want to live because I didn't like the, the world around me. I didn't like the way I saw the world around me and the way I felt all the time. But I didn't want to die either because I was terrified of dying. Yeah. So I was just left in this purgatory, and um, yeah, I was just scared. I think, more than anything, I just lost, maybe it could be another word as well. Um, I don't know
3: about you. Desperate, for me. Just like, the the lowest for me was when I was doing all this pacing in, in this kitchen it was. I've knackered the floor, actually, from all the walking. <laughs> 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 yeah, that it, it, was, it was like, it was almost jogging at some points. Like, it was that impulse when like I was running and stopping on the counter, running back and having all these mad thoughts and... And I was always having... For, like, sort of three, four months, I was just having suicidal thoughts every day. Just thought, I can't I can't do this anymore. I just want to die. And then the one night I got in my car and I was going to go and jump off the Montessori car park in Telford. I got in my car to go and do it. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I need to do this. And the only reason I didn't really was because my family and my friends, I thought, I can't do this to them. And also, like Dan said, I was just scared to death. Well, <laughs> stupid... I was scared of what happens when you die. So I was like, would you go to hell? Or like, where do you go? What happens yeah, yeah. when you die? Because like, yeah. when you think about it every day, so a normal life, you wouldn't really think about death so much, would you? But well, no. It's like, it's never really in your head. And you never think about what happens after so heavily. But I was thinking, what actually happens when you die? And I was terrified of what that would be. Because I thought, you can't just switch off. Because it's like, when you, when you go to sleep, you only know you've been asleep because you wake up. So what happens when you're just not alive anymore? it's terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Honestly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I was desperate. I just thought, and I was even, like, I'm not a religious guy or anything. Well, I maybe I'm a bit now, but I never was. I was like, it ain't real this and that. But at my lowest, I, w- I was, like, praying most days, like, please help me because I, I can't do this anymore to myself and my family. Because, like, my mum and dad are late 60s. And I was going around their house every day and just walking, wearing out their floorboards. And I was like, and they, they didn't know what to do with me. They couldn't, like, I was nearly sectioned. He said, we've got to call and get you taken away because we can't cope with this. Mm. And I just sort of like help me please. And then sort of from there, when I was praying, I think feel, things started to get better. So I don't know if there is someone up there or whatever, but I feel like I'm more obliged to believe there is now because it, and it, even if it just helped me thinking someone's gonna help me. Yeah. I think that was enough.
1: But
0: I have heard, and, and I don't know any science behind this or, or anything like that, but I have heard that the point in which you start to take action towards suicide, you're actually starting to climb out of it. Now, I don't know how true that is.
3: Well, I think you've got to hit the lowest point before you start climbing back up, haven't you? So there's probably some mm. truth in that. But I was just... Like, I was... I can't believe I was thinking it now, but like... Are we going dark in this? this yeah, yeah, you when, <laughs> was, you when want I was mate. doing this no. run, I mean, marathon every day... Mm. Um, for like a week there was a knife on the side and I was just looking at this knife and I was walking up to it like I haven't got to worry about going back to work I haven't got to worry about this now because I'm just going to get that knife and I'm, ju- I'm just going like, to peel my throat open and I'm just going to kill myself I can't do this anymore and then that, that sort of subsided after like a week and then the next thing was i got a tattoo on my stomach and it's like a it's cool it's a, like a satanic <laughs> goat skull, like an all C and I and all that, all that goat, stuff. Goat skull. Yeah, like a satanic. Shall I show it? Yeah,
2: no. let's have a look because we've oh, got goats. Oh, of course, you're gonna get yeah. your top off in the So
3: uh, it's <laughs> like a satanic goat skull. Yeah, really cool. But because <laughs> I was not okay, I was I was searching for everything for like why 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 it all went wrong, what happened like, and I thought, oh, it's this tattoo. Since I've had this tattoo, yeah, nothing's gone right in my life. It's all gone wrong with. Because it's, it's it's a satanic skull and marked by the devil. That's what it is. I'm, I'm marked by the devil. I've got to get it off. So, I went to the knife drawer, and I was checking all the knives for the sharpest knife, and I was going to cut it off. I was going to cut my stomach off because I thought once I do that, everything will be right. Yeah. And I just can't believe that I was in that place now. But yeah, here I am. So I just didn't think I'd be here at all. Well,
2: uh, you're
1: weird. Uh, you're uh, well. Uh, <laughs> honestly. It's all the stuff I was thinking. Again, I thank you for sort of sharing that story, really. If, if we sort of flip back to Dan, what sort of helped you to get out of the, the sort of mental state that he was in? Was it just a case of speaking to the right people? Well,
0: it, can I just... Like, do you remember the point in which it changed?
2: Yeah, so... And,
0: and then what was going on at that point?
2: Yeah, I, I, I do amongst... Um, I think... Because my mental health journey is complex in the way that it was fueled as well by alcohol and drugs. So Mm. it wasn't purely just what was going on in my head. It was also what was being supplied into my body as well because that was my way of coping with things. Um, At the time, so I I was living with a partner and honestly, this woman was... I can't praise her enough as a person and the stuff I put her through just by being with me, you know, and... um, the emotional torment that must've been going on for her. And, you know, she eventually got to a point where she couldn't do it anymore. Um, we were living together and it just, you know, she couldn't deal with the, the constant lies coming from me, uh, the states I was turning up in, everything like that. And, you know, I think her exact words were, I love you, but I can't watch you kill yourself anymore. Yeah. Um, so she took me back to my parents' house and she didn't. She just dropped me off with a case full of my things. Yeah, and it finally clicked, like, oh, my God, she's leaving me. And I remember crying to her, and I was saying, I can't do this without you. Please don't leave me. Like, you know, something out of, like, a soap opera or something, you know. Um, And I was like, please don't tell my parents the real reasons why. Do you know what I mean? Because my parents, to this point, um, they had suspicions, but I think because it's your child, you don't want to believe that they're doing the things that they're doing. Yeah, Um, They had suspicions, but she, um, she dropped me off, and she went, no, I'm going to tell them because I think... I don't want them thinking bad of me for a start, and secondly because I think that's the only way you're going to get help is if people know, and you need that help because if not, you're going to die and i I was at that point I'd lost loads of weight like George was saying about losing weight. I think I got to eight and a half stone I think was at my lowest um, so I moved back in with my parents and I promised them that's it I'm going to sort it out you know i'm I'm gonna sort but I still was using the fact any lie to keep my addiction alive. So I was still trying to find any way around it, you know, reasons to get out of the house and stuff like that. I got caught again, you know, because it gets harder and harder to hide it, especially when you're in those sort of states. You can't, you know, I think my dad had gone up to my room while his dad says he'd smelt booze on me and he realized there was just bottles of wine everywhere, empty bottles of wine littered around my room and he couldn't even wait how, how i'd been getting them or anything like that and i can't remember exactly how i was um and at that point once i'd been caught i panicked and i ran away from home and i just literally like a child just running out the door
0: how, how old were you now Dan, at this I'm, point
2: I'm, so i was 28 at this point 28, yeah so it would have been yeah 20 i'm 30 now so just over i think i'm two years and two months now clean and sober um but yeah, it was like a child running away from home and I ran away because I just panicked. I didn't know what to do. Um, and I, I ran into a field and attempted to take my own life. And that was, you know, where I was, was fuelled by alcohol and drugs at this point as well, so my thinking wasn't clear. Um, and a friend came and, came and found me in this field. He was the only one I answered the phone to because uh, we have, I had gone to some recovery meetings previously um,
0: it was this AA yeah, like a AA, NA, a type thing NA, things
2: like that there's another meeting called pan which just means all addictions you know could be gambling sex or so, uh, because quite often the, the whatever your vice is is a symptom yeah. you know mm-hmm. the real problem is what's going on you know inside you um and he came family. he took me to a meeting that night and um at the end of the meeting he just he, he looked at me, i was a complete broken shell of a person in this meeting i just had nothing to left i had no fight left in me anymore um and one of the biggest things the, the first step so you're hearing you know people say the first step is admitting it you're hearing films and all those yeah, sort of yeah. things when it comes to alcoholism and stuff like that but yeah acceptance is one of is part of the first step but the other the other part of it is surrender and i just at this point i had no fight left in me whatsoever i couldn't fight my addiction anymore and i just surrendered to the fact that drugs and alcohol and my mental health had beaten me i couldn't do it anymore on my own i couldn't have this male ego and pride of I'm going to find a way through it. Um, And my friend asked me after the meeting, he said, do you want to give me the last of your booze and your drugs and we'll chuck it away down this drain? And I went, yeah, and we did. And we poured it away down, poured the vodka bottle that I had down the drain, poured the last of my drugs down the drain. He took me home and I went to sleep. Um, And my dad locked me in the house, only left the house under my dad's supervision for two weeks. Until I got into a supported housing project. So um, it's not quite like a rehab where they do like a detox and stuff like that, but it's like a bridge back to normal living. So they address all of the reasons that you were using and drinking in the first place. So you'll find this with a lot of people that are struggling with drug and alcohol addictions is, um, as I say, that what they're using or taking doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter which substance it is. Underneath, there's normally an underlying problem, it could be trauma. Related, it could be mental health related, just not being able to cope or or anything like that. Um, And until you start dealing with those things, you'll always end up returning to your crutch. So I needed that support that was on hand, you know, seven days a week, living in a house with other people going through the same thing, and finally some understanding of why I felt the way I did that I'd never understood for most of my life. And I think that for me was the biggest turning point. So um, that partner I was with at the time, sadly, we're not together anymore. But not for those reasons. We did actually get back together while I was in recovery. Right. Um, And we ended for for normal relationship ending reasons. You know, we had a chat like adults and decided, you know, it wasn't working. But I was really happy we were able to at least reconcile and I managed to make amends and, you know, and say, you know, I'm sorry and thank you, you know, for for helping you out. For everything she'd done for me. You know, she's a saint and I I credit part of me still being here on this planet to her. and then my parents as well, what they, they did for me. And then um, this friend that was in recovery, you know, he's a family friend. He's someone I used to session with, you know, back in the day. And he turned his life around through the help of meetings and other friends. And he passed that on Then, you know, by taking me along. And that's one of the beautiful things about how it works in those meetings. It's just, you know... Um,
1: can, can you just explain, you know, if, if someone is struggling and, and they go along to one of these meetings, what, what they can sort of expect from something like that?
2: Sure. So firstly, if, if you need to find a meeting in your, in your local area, be it NA or AA, whatever your primary uh, thing is, NA is Narcotics Anonymous, by the way, so it's a branch of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. Um, if you need to find any meetings, you can literally just type into Google AA UK or N A U K and put in your postcode and it will give you all the meetings in the local area, what times, when, and that sort of thing. Um, in terms of what to expect, so the meetings are anonymous for a start. I know it's in the name, but people don't always believe that that's what it is. But you know, I've met plenty of people at meetings I knew from other walks of life. But you know, they were going there and and seeking help, and they didn't want other people in the rest of their life to know. And that's you know, it's for them if they if they don't want people to know. I'm quite open about my story, but other people aren't so, and Mm. that's absolutely fine. Um, But what I did find in meetings was there was people who'd had the same problems as me, some potentially worse, some maybe not so bad. You know but it was bad enough for them. And that's, you know, that's what matters. And they were stood around laughing, joking, sharing tea and coffee, biscuits, cakes, and things like that. Um, and you get to hear other people's stories and how they've turned it around. And it gives you hope more than anything. You see people that have had, you know, the same issues you've had. And they're sat there laughing, smiling, they're holding down jobs. They've got, you know, great relationships with their partner or their families. And that was all I ever wanted, you know. But more than anything, I just wanted to be happy, and I saw people there with something I wanted, and it gave me that hope that if they can do it, I can do it as well. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing that I found in me, is probably hope.
0: So we, we talked about like one word to describe your lowest points, pair of you. How would you just describe life now, if you could use sort of one word and and kind of explain why?
2: You can, you can go
0: first. <laughs> throwing you, in, throwing you into the bus, George. No, that's tough on that.
1: Or maybe not if you can't come up like, with a word. Why, you know, just dis- sort of describe, you know, how you how life is going now and better. <laughs> well, <laughs> just more. There normal. you go, better. Yeah. You come up with a word.
3: Just doing the things that I was doing before, by the most part, I just couldn't do it at the time. But it's a, it was like a melting pot of things that sort of got me out on like the other side of it. Like medication, getting that right with my doctor, which took like a number of weeks to sort out and get that correct. Um, I had a few mates that like were just always on at me, like getting me out with them, out the house, and whatever, and all that stuff. Even it, when I was,
0: yeah, I was going to say, even if you didn't want to. Well, yeah,
3: and, and the things I'd be saying to them, but like obviously, well, I want to kill myself. I don't want to be here anymore. I, I don't want to leave this. And they just sort of, no, you're ridiculous, ridiculous. But and they wouldn't like give up. i be like, oh, I'm not dealing with that. They'd like still get me out or we'll come, even though like they'd even we go to like a restaurant to eat. And I couldn't sit down. I'd like, I'd, I'd eat a bit and go outside and walk, and then come back in, eat a bit and go outside and walk. I just couldn't sit down, nothing. But they would still come out with us, you know, get you out, and they'd never give up on me, sort of thing.
1: And do you want to do you want to name these people? Yeah. If, Alex Hudson, shout out. <laughs>
3: uh, Kim Ravenscroft, shout out. Uh, Chris Roberts. Was them were the three. Main guys, really, but the guy that from rugby that is Reese McAllister, where is he? There he is. He <laughs> well, met me in Shrewsbury, and like because he was messaging me through the whole thing, like he never give up, yeah. was, even though I wasn't reading him, he still messaging me, like trying to keep in touch with me. He's the one that sort of turned it all around for me and give me his time. And then because he's had some stuff going on in his life, so he knows that how, how dark things can get. And that I went and had like an hour walk with him and a talk with him, and that was when big turning point comes. So I've, I've said to him a number of times, like. He's one of the main reasons I'm still here, like, in in a way, he saved my life, sort of thing, but I just, because it was like, it was almost like Divine Intervention, I called it, because I'm really setting my ways, like, autism style, so I think I'm Mm -hmm. autistic, right? And when we go to Shrewsbury, I'll only ever park in the same car park. I won't park anywhere else, and there's one occasion I parked in a different car park, and when I was walking back to the car to go elsewhere, that's when he drove past and that wouldn't have happened if I'd done yeah. the normal thing but for whatever reason i just up out there and that's when he he sent me like but because he'd not seen me none of the lads had since I'd dropped all the weight and was homeless looking and a total mess like and then he he sent me and he come and spoke to me and that was yeah that was a, a big turning point and then within like a just over a week maybe I was back up at the rugby club and I'd seen all the lads and I was like oh, I've got to get back here
2: there was so a game wasn't there it was, it was yeah. a Friday Night Lights yeah game. that was a I, game. I remember like Rhys had told me he said i oh, I think George is going to come down later. Because I've, I've been messaging you as well yeah, and yeah. Um, obviously he's not been replying. I try not to do it too often because I didn't want to, you know, peck his head sort of thing. But so yeah. I, I, was, I was still messaging just like, just let us know how you are. Do you know what I mean? We miss you and, and that sort of thing. And I remember seeing you on the sideline and, and just coming over and giving you a big hug. He whispered in me. he said, I'm sorry for, you know, not messaging about. Me. I said, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. It's just great to see you. It's good to see you back.
3: But that was a big thing as well. Like, even though, like, you and of the lads, even though I wasn't reading or replying, they were still sending messages and trying to ring me and all this. And he, yeah. like I say, I wasn't answering or replying nothing. It, it still meant a lot to me. So it's like... If you've got a friend or, or whoever who's going through something, like I was, sort of thing, you don't really know fully what's going on, but you know they're in a bad way, don't give up. Keep keep sending messages, even if you, they're not reading or replying, because I was still looking at them, and, and I could still see that people care, and people want me back. So that's
1: massive. Just just never give up on anyone. And, and how... It's a bit of a strange question now. How long did, would you have said said it, it took you until you sort of you thought he was back on a you know back on the right path was it quite quite a quick it sort of just went like that yeah yeah cuz uh, we got two different sorts of stories here aren't we it, really? it was like
3: it was sort of a steady burner where i think that... cuz the doctor got me dr Lonsdale much like, shout out <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a great bloke he got me on the right track but like when he first seen me i, I brought my mum and dad in to see him and i was walking about in his his, his office like his and I just couldn't talk to him properly. And like, my parents had to talk for me sort of thing because I just wasn't all right in my mind. Like, And and he said, we need to try on this, he'd try on that. and So in the end, I was I'm, I'm still on him. He put me on like four different medications. And then I'd see him every couple of weeks and he'd change the dose and this and that. And and they they started sort of working. And I sort of, I couldn't see it myself I was getting better. Mm. So I thought, I'm still thinking these things and I'm still doing all the pacing and but he said you'll you're definitely better you can't see it yourself but you're getting there and I was like no I'm not I'm not I don't want to be here and all that sort of stuff and then it all just come together when I sort of seen Reese and I spoke to him and that was just like like I say I went back then went home after the walk with him yeah and I sat down like I said and then it I was just sort of my head just something just clicked I'm mad.
2: I remember yeah. you coming back to training the, for the first time and you were like, I'm just going to try and try, you know, running and stuff initially because you were saying your hips and stuff. Oh like yeah, that. like
3: my body was like, I dropped, like I say, I was like 16 and a half stone like in the gym all the while and like this and that and um, I dropped to 12 and like my feet were cut to bits, bleeding, Sw- all like my, the balls and, and my feet and all that were swollen and hard. It hurt to walk, my knees were hurting and all crunchy and knackered like my hips were hurting. My groin was in bits because I couldn't. Like I say it was doing like basically a marathon every day, like two hundred thousand steps, and I just couldn't stop it. And bottom of my back was in bits, and it just hurt to to move around.
2: But it was amazing. Like you, your aim was for Christmas. So mm. you, you said I yeah. want to be back playing by Christmas, and that was your aim. We've now had you back halfway through September. Yeah. So it shows you the speed that once it's you started feeling better and you were back doing those... Normality. Th- normality. How quickly things changed, and you got back in the gym, and you mm. got back in all, all that sort of stuff. And your body's got all that sort of memory from before. I
3: put... From eating how I was
1: before, and back in the gym and that, over a week and a half, I put on a stone and a half. It seems to, like, listening to your story, it seems that, like, when you're sort of of describing it, that that moment when you've decided you're going back into the rugby environment and you're back with your mates, it seems to me, listening to you, that that's the sort of moment you you sort of have started to recognise that you're getting better or you're you're certainly there. It was.
3: And And I want to be better. Yeah. Because I'd sort of, when it was really bad, I'd sort of resigned myself to, and my family said it to me the same thing, like, they were like, when is this going to stop? When are you going to stop the walking? What, what can we do? Is this just you forever now? And I was like, yeah. I can't stop it. I want to. I really want to, but I just can't. I couldn't sit down and watch telly with my mum and dad like, in the room. I just have to get back up again. And just I was walking in the bedroom, so oh. I was out of the way. I wanted to be there with them, but I just I was in the bedroom like that.
2: It almost sounds like OCD, to an extent. Well, it, the
3: doctor said to me... Obsessive-compulsive disorder. Mm, that's part of what antidepressants sort of fix as well, isn't it? It's OCD, PTSD... Um, depression, anxiety, all that stuff. But the doctor actually said to me, This is his diagnosis in the end, because the other doctors I'd seen, I bounced around like five different ones with Tel Doc, I think it is. Mm. They diagnose it as situational depression or reactive depression. But he said to me, You've got the worst case of PTSD I've ever seen. He said, It's not that you've seen a friend get blown up in theatre or, or, or you've been blown up or something like that. He said, But you've the worst case of PTSD. I've ever seen you not coping and we've just got to get got the, get this right. And in the end he did and the last time I saw him was a, a couple of weeks ago and I, sh- I shook his hand and like gave him a hug and I said, you, we did it, thanks. Like, you've, you helped to fix me. Yeah.
0: There's, there's a couple of things I want to say. A, I read a quote today as you do on Facebook and everything and it said, I, I'm not a hugger, like I just don't like hugging. I don't like saying goodbye to anyone or anything like that. I'm just like, whatever, just go. But I read this quote and it was like, the hug is, what, what was it? Something like, it's the, it's the, best form of non-verbal communication there is in telling somebody that you matter to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I thought, fucking hell. And then and listen to you too, you know, you, you saw George at rugby, gave him a hug. You saw your mate, he gave you a hug. You know what I mean? And, and I, I have a moment as well that I remember that I was at, at a time when I was pretty freaking low and I thought everyone just fucking hated us. And then I was walking past a pub that I used to drink in and two lads that I used to work with come out and they were like, fucking hell, how are you doing? You know? And, and uh, None of us are fucking huggers, you know. Mm. And it, they, they gave me a massive hug. And you we like, come on, we're going for a pint. And my girlfriend at the time was like, go and have a drink. And, um, you know, and, and it always stands out in my mind, that was a point in which I, you know, started to, my life started to get a little bit better as
2: well. So It is weird, like you just touched on something, George mentioned it as well, that once you're in that um, pit of despair, or you're, you know, you're in the pit of depression, it's got its grip on you, you convince yourself, that you don't matter to other people mm. and that, you you know, you're not going to get better. This is how your life is. Nobody cares, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And that was never true for me. It was never true for George, you know, that nobody cared or anything like that. But you convince yourself that that's how it is because, as I say, your brain turns on itself. Your thinking isn't rational, you know. Um, and sometimes, you know, as George said, people just hammering that message home that you do matter, you are loved, you know. And let's drop that toxic masculinity thing of you know um, we don't need to you know talk about our feelings and whatever, as George has said, the fact that people message him the fact that they still cared might have been might have saved his life. Do you mm. know what I mean, and stuff like that, and I certainly felt the same you know I had a, a, an old friend come and see me and showed me some love, and I'm not saying the other people didn't show me love, but that was the one that got through to me yeah and it, you know, it's it's that sort of thing. If you keep throwing, you know, shit at a wall, something will eventually stick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I know it's not the best analogy to use, but
1: oh, we've had a few good quotes before. Wait, I've we? got I've
0: got a fucking quote for you right yeah, now. Yeah, go on. <laughs> so my quote right now, just what you're saying there is, you know, when you're in the frame, you can't see the picture. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's that that's the, what you're describing. You know what I mean? Like when when it's when it's you that's in that moment there, you, you can't see everybody else around you, you know, and, and what they think. When my, my lowest point, I was going to drive into fucking oncoming traffic. And, and the reason why I didn't is I've got two boys and I thought I cannot leave them with no, with no father. You know what I mean? I can't do it. And, and I can't, I can't do it to my mum either. You know what I mean? And, and that was enough to kind of funny story. I, i, I got onto the fucking hard shoulder like just parked up on the hard shoulder and I was having some counseling at the time and the council had said, "Just put the Samaritans' number in your phone, just just in case. Oh, fuck, i don't fucking need the Samaritans. Just put it in your phone. You know, you've got it. You've got it if you need it." So I tried phoning the Samaritans. There was no phone signal. <laughs> no, <really. laughs> so I, I was. Thought fucked.
1: you were going to say it a flat tyre no, or something. Like that. So
0: you know, I was bawling <laughs> tears and uh, managed to limp off the fucking road, and then sort of sat there for an hour. and Then phoned my mum, and that was the point in which I was like, "Right, like, let's go now. I don't want to be like that anymore. I want things to be better." and you I, know, think, I think everything. it's so
2: important, like what George mentioned as well, about the fact that his case of PTSD was so bad, and yet he hadn't, you know, been to a war zone or, or something like that happening. So it's I remember someone, someone told me you can get PTSD from stubbing your toe. Do you know what I mean? You can, no, you can, and it's your reaction. And,
0: and there's also there's also something <clears throat> called PTSD C, PTSD complex, and and it can be just a series of events. You know, it can be things that have happened, you know, whilst you were growing up that you haven't processed right or. I don't want to say it's right or wrong, but you've, you've processed it in a certain way and, and now it's affecting, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be. And, and to be honest, my, my background is military-like. You know, I, every, every conflict over the last 15 years I was involved in, and uh, Afghan and Iraq, I was in the initial invasion. I thought you were going to say
2: you caused. No, <laughs>
0: I've got some great stories about fucking causing a war. But anyway, because um, I, I, I was having, you know, counselling for PTSD, and I thought it was going to be Bomb blasts, you know, firefights, fucking ambush, all this kind of shit. And when we boiled it all down, it was it was none of that. It was none of that. Like all that stuff, I could fucking handle and process, and all this kind of stuff. And it was it was other stuff, you know, softer stuff that just it absolutely took me by surprise. And when I when I spoke about it and kind of worked out what I felt about it and thought about it and 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 you know spoke spoke to a professional about it, everything else fell away. You know, it was just absolutely bizarre.
2: I think as well like you know there's very very few people who go through their whole life without a period of struggle and it could be caused by anything you know um as as george says you know there was no sign it was going to happen something's happened it's just triggered it off and i think it's important even if you you know up to this point haven't struggled just to be aware of you know if something does happen and i hope it doesn't happen you know, to you, and I hope you don't have to go through those struggles, each and every person. But if you do, just have an idea of where you might be able to, you know, seek help or, or, you know, um, what your friends might be able to do. If, if one of your friends starts struggling, just have an idea. We're not asking you to be a qualified counsellor, just check you know, in or a therapist. Yeah,
1: just that's all it takes. Just ask your right, mate.
3: Yeah, that's enough.
1: I'm just going to throw something out, bring it back to the, the back to rugby slightly, and I think we could probably all answer this one. Is, um, you know, how much do you think team sport plays in keeping someone's mental health in check?
3: Massive. It has been for me yeah. because that was like, like I say, I sat down, and looked at all the pictures, and and it wasn't as as much as just playing the game, which that was a big part of it because I loved yep. to play. But it was the lads, and I was like all the little bits that come with it, like talking to lads through the week about the games or the game or training, going to training in the change rooms, having the crack. All that stuff, like away days, all that stuff. That's what. That's such a big part of it. They, your brothers, aren't they? On hmm. and off the field, and that, that was proven by, like, my case, still trying to like call me and message me and all that. Like, it was more those lads doing it than some of like my best mates. Like, yeah. just constantly, you right, you're right, because you're with them all the time, aren't you? Like through the season, it's like at least three times a week.
1: But I just wanted to get back to to that. There's that familiarity there yeah. as well, isn't there, what you were talking about earlier?
2: Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, f- for me, um, as much as obviously it's a form of exercise that's giving you, you know, a, an endorphin release anyway. And it's, with rugby being the way it is and its physicality, mm. it, it's stress release in general from life. You know, because you, you're putting all that adrenaline and everything into it. By the time you get to a Saturday night after you're done, you know, and you sat down with your takeaway or whatever it is, you're napping, but you feel good. If if you've had a win, you feel good anyway, not um, the other way around. But more than anything, for 80 minutes on a Saturday, nothing else in my life matters apart from trying to win a game of rugby with my mates. So everything that stresses me out in the week or gets on top of me, and I'm still like this now because things will get on top of me. Life throws curveballs all the time. You know, work can be stressful or anything like that. All I think is just get through to Saturday, you know. And then once I get through to Saturday, for that 80 minutes, nothing else matters, you know. And, yeah, yeah. And I just feel, I feel free and all I'm concentrating on is, is the game the next play or, you know, stuff like that. And it just has that really freeing, you know, thing. I've, you know? I've
1: said it to you a couple of times I, this year. I, rugby to me is on team sport in general. It is, is a release, it, like, like exactly what you've just pointed out. I think that's probably why I'm struggling to retire. To be honest with you, because <laughs> I, uh, without it, I'm, I, I, I do struggle. Like I'm, I'm quite a calm person, but stuff will boil Fucking up in what? No, hang on, <laughs> hang, on, hang on, hang on, You've <laughs> seen <his team laughs> talks, right? this is what I was. just about to get to. If you'd see, if you see me at work and, and things like that, and and home life, and I think you, you people would always say I'm quite a calm person. You get me on that rugby pitch for 80 minutes and I turn into an absolute animal because it is just that release and let's say, team talks. (laughs) That's the start of it. That's when it starts coming out and, and like I say, it resets me. Play for 80 minutes, you reset again for next week and then... And it's changed my
2: outlook. You know, what I've been through, you know, through my 20s and stuff like that. I'm rugby, so when I was younger... I was all about winning you know it was it was all about that be on and all of winning and don't get me wrong i still want to win every time i step onto the field i'm competitive but it no longer ruins my whole weekend if i don't win yeah i'm just so grateful to be taking part enjoying it being there with my mates having the laugh in the clubhouse afterwards and the way my life is now i'm just so grateful for that that almost the result it's not inconsequential but it doesn't have that um it, it, I don't afford it the ability to ruin my week or my weekend like it would have done previously. Um, so, rugby's been a massive part of my life from a young mm. age, you know, um, and I've grown with rugby as well. So, I've learned things through rugby, I've learned various different skills through rugby. It's helped me cope with some really difficult times as well, and I've got to enjoy some really good times as well. You know, rugby's yeah. taken me to some amazing places, um, you know different contracts going to different teams and things like that, going abroad on tours, all of that sort of stuff, going to watch games and coach trips and all those sort of journeys. They're memories that you can hold on to for a lifetime. And there's a reason you've still got the lads who are 70, 80 years old coming down the rugby club on a Saturday, talking about how good they were back in the day, you know, with their mates that they played with and, you know, watching the current crop and stuff like that. I think it's such a beautiful thing.
0: I think everyone, yeah, you just need a tribe, don't you? You know what mm. I mean? Everyone, everyone needs a tribe. And, and as well as, I mean, I, I'm a massive believer that we need a little bit of hardship in life. You know, we, we need we need to be up against it sometimes. And, you know, there's another great quote here for you, Carl, and that's irritated oysters make pearls, you know, and and people are like that. You know what I mean? If, we, if life's too easy sometimes, we can just get a little bit depressed and, you know, it's a bit shit in it. But we've, mm. when we've got challenge, you know, Especially challenge as a collective, a group of people. Like, that's what we fucking evolved to do, like, you know, fundamentally. So, you know, to go and do that on a, on a pitch on a Saturday, it, it, it's obvious, isn't it, why yeah, it's yeah. such a big thing um, in our lives. Dan, uh, George, I don't know you, so I can't ask you this question, but I'm sure you'll tell me. I not
3: chirping. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: does it help that you, you're good at it? <laughs>
2: Well, that's just not for me to say, I suppose, whether I'm good at it or not. I'm going to admit, go. So, it right. it,
1: okay, it was your first year playing rugby league, wasn't it, this year, Dan? Yeah, it was. So, uh, tell us a little bit about transitioning from rugby union, how you found it going from union into league, and then, you know, you've come into player league for first season, you've won the league great bunch oh, of I didn't lads. do it personally and I'm beating you up yeah, here mate. Cheers, <laughs> and you've been selected for the Midlands rep gonna, team in, in your first year so talk me through sort of your first season of playing league
2: first I've absolutely loved it I really wish I'd have started playing when I was younger um, I'm not going to badmouth Union here because Union's been a great Game for me, you know, from growing up, and it was the first game I started playing. Yeah, Um, absolutely love it. When I moved moved away from football, that was because that's what everyone played in my journal. But um, Union as a game has changed a lot over the last ten years, Um, and I completely understand their reasons for it. You know, with the lower in the tackle high and player safety being at paramount. But we played a game, for example, last weekend of Union, in which I think. If I was to estimate, the ball was in play for about 30 minutes, yeah. roughly. There was that many penalties. And I understand why they're doing it, but there's um, And the ref was only applying the laws that he's been given to apply. Um, and most of those tack- were for high tackles. Um, and it, it, it was really frustrating to play in because you couldn't get any sort of rhythm. Hmm. And what I've absolutely loved about Playing rugby league this year is, it's so, it's constant while you're playing, I think probably, I reckon about 75 of the 80 minutes the ball is in play, do you know what I mean? And and I found it a real challenge fitness-wise, I thought I was fit, you know, uh, I'd finished a union season, I played nearly every single game through that union season, I would played 80 minutes in all of those games as well, I thought I was really fit. And then when you're playing league, it's a completely different level of fitness. You don't, I'm a back in union, so you don't get the breaks that you get at a line out, a scrum when there's penalties, things like that. It's right, there's a penalty and we're going again. And yeah. you're you defending, you know, and if you've got to defend repeat sets, you know, when you're defending two or three sets in a row, and if, they ca- if they're carrying down your side of the field as well over and over and you're making four or five tackles in those two or three sets and you're having to get up 10 metres, back 10 metres, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I found that a real challenge. There's a reason rugby league shorts don't have pockets in it. Them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, and I've, absolutely, I've found the challenge of, of playing in the summer as well. You know, I'm, I'm not the most tanned of, tanned of blokes. <sighs> and, you know, when, when you get in those days where it's, well. <laughs> when it, when it's 30 odd degrees. And it's boiling hot. That that, that comes with a challenge. But also, I love playing running rugby. Mm. So when you're in the middle of winter and you're playing rugby, union, it's minus two. You know, you're not playing the most glamorous of rugby. You kick into corners and hoping yeah, yeah. you're packed as a job. Whereas in league, you know, it is, it is just, yeah, you get the ball through the hands and you play. And you're just playing what's in front of you all the time. There's not as much preset calling and things like that. And I think it does highlight all the strengths of my game. I think that's why I've taken to it so well. You know, like one of the strongest parts of my game is my running You're game. You're a running player, aren't you? Yeah, and I love to see space in front of me and attack it and get my hands on the ball. And Raiders, you know, it took me a little bit of time in the first few training sessions to get used to the play and the ball and stuff like that. But once once you get all of that stuff, it's a lot more simple a game to pick up and play than Union is. I think Union is so complicated, the breakdown and stuff like that. There's a lot of nuances that you have to learn, scrummaging. If you want to come into rugby union and become a pro there's an awful lot you've got trouble you've got to learn <laughs> there's an awful lot you've got yeah. to learn about it, you know scrummaging and, and stuff like that whereas league and i've seen it with the women's team especially at raiders this year some of those have never played rugby before some are still very new to rugby some have been playing union for a while but they haven't had the same chance to work on their core skills of the passing tackling running and league gives them 80 minutes where you're focusing on all of those skills so some of these women that have been playing for Telford Raiders have, have now come back to Rugby Union and their confidence in their skills has gone through the roof mm. and it's and it's great to see and, and this is what I love now that it's there doesn't seem to be that same animosity between the two codes or, or that at least there doesn't seem to be at Telford anyway. It's because half our squad play both. Half our fast squad do play both which is which is helpful but both codes are benefiting from players coming yeah, across yeah. And, yeah. and you know um but yeah, personally, it's been it's been a hell of a journey on the first season to to be Midlands finalists to win, to win the Midlands final, um, to get to the Harry Jepsen final. Unfortunately, we came just short. Um, on another day, I, I genuinely think that could have gone another way. I think we got back to yeah. within four points, um, fine margins sometimes, um, and then to get to represent this Sunday just gone uh, Midlands against a uh, you know a team from London, a team from west of England, a team from east of England. And, you know, we came second in that tournament and the only team that came above us were London and we knew London would be strong. Yeah. And there wasn't um, much difference between the two sides. I think they scored two tries and, and we ended up with none. We had, I think, one held up over the line um, and one they just dotted down over the line before, before we got there. And one of their tries came from a charge down kick that he didn't even charge it down. It just landed in his belly and he ran the length of the field. <laughs> Do you, know, do you know what I mean? It, it just, and the guy put some force into the kick as well and it just stuck. You know, and sometimes you just have to go, well, that's unlucky. But mm. um, it was a real adventure and it's something I've really enjoyed. Like I know people talk about other oh, Southern England scouts here and, you know, there's um, the game's going to be on video and people might get a call and stuff like that. To be honest, I never expected to get to be playing in the first team for Telford Raiders. So to then be doing that consistently and to be scoring tries and con- contributing to the team and then to be selected for Midlands and, and stuff like that. Everything has been a bonus from that point on, and that's the way I saw it on Sunday. I didn't feel any pressure playing because I was like, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't ex- ever expect to be here in the first yeah. place. So it's, it's, it's all been a bonus, and it's been, and it's been a really great journey. I'm looking forward to next season already. I've absolutely loved it.
0: Yeah, and you've, you've dragged in George along. Yeah.
2: So. Yeah, they've been trying to drag me along for the last five
1: or six years, to be fair. Yeah, it's, it's
3: I just dangerous. wasn't allowed. I, I, but,
1: by the way, um, any guest that comes on a Rugby League podcast is uh, contractually obliged to play Rugby League next season. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, take. mate, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will. Um,
3: to be fair, it's like, I always wanted to, it's just that Union was the game that I was playing and I was never like allowed to play League because I, I took the piss enough in my relationship as it was with the gym and rugby anyway, right. so to play it all over the summer was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's month. a big commitment, playing yeah. 12 months of the year, isn't it? So, but oh, now, I, it. <laughs> now I can, so... But, like, my dad's you Northern, know, my dad's from Doncaster, like, so he's Rugby League over Union all the way, and he's always gone on at me to play League, and so now I'm good, so...
1: Sounds yeah. like a sensible man, his dad, yeah,
3: yeah.
0: It? I just want to... So, bring it back to... <laughs> uh, ...recovery and, <laughs> you know, and, and rebuilding your lives and all that kind of stuff. Now, obviously, you, you two know each other really well. What similarities do you see in... You know, picking yourself up again and getting back on your feet.
3: Talking about it. That's a big thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. Because yeah. you're you're really open with it and you were sort of from the start with the lads. And for me when I was ready to come back and be blasted, I just say I'll tell you how it is. And then I, I actually did like a, a load of stories on my Instagram for people that like know me or know like know of me but like following me and all that. Just so if there's any questions of where I've been and what's happened I just put it all out there, like the lot and load of stories. So. And I had loads of people come out sort of out the woodwork to say that I hadn't spoke to in years and years from college or school or whatever, saying, Jesus, like, didn't, didn't this was going on, mate? I'm really sorry. And you're really brave for putting this out there and sort of thing. And if you ever need to talk to someone that's totally impartial, come and, come and have a chat. So that was really good.
0: Well, well, communication, obviously, a two-way thing. And so what I want to get at is, or what, what I want to talk, talk about now is, what was the best way you found that, that people received what you were saying? Does that make sense? Like, you know, because obviously it takes some listening. Do you want.
2: Yeah, oh, um, it's. So, uh, when I was at my worst, it, it was very obvious. Do you know what I mean? People could see it. It was etched all over my body, my face, and stuff like that. So, a lot of people are facing very silent battles that aren't so obvious um and for any of those people you know that there's a lot of people struggling who you would never think on a day-to-day basis are struggling you know we we see it a lot with with comedians you know when they take their own lives tragically and things like that and i think one of the reasons they try and make people smile so much is because they know what it feels like to feel sad and they want to bring that joy to other people's lives and at least that's the way i see it anyway and um i think it's really difficult because as human beings we're not mind readers so you know I have my laugh at work or with the Rugby Lads or whatever, but unless it's etched all over someone's body and face, it's really hard for me to know if somebody else is struggling. So my biggest advice to anyone would be, even if it's you know, something that seems inconsequential to you or seems so small to you, just if it's causing you to struggle, please, please, please just open up to someone. I would rather sit there And talk to you for hours on end about something you thought wasn't important than to read your name in an obituary, Mm. you know, because you didn't feel like you could talk to anyone, who you thought people would laugh it off, or anything like that. You know, there's no there's no problem too small, there's no problem too big. Um, I'm not telling you I'm going to have all the answers when you speak to me. Um, But but I think
0: sometimes you you don't want people to give you an answer here. You know, you just
2: just want someone to listen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think. Yeah, I was. I I didn't know how I felt. For most of my life, you know, I couldn't expect someone else to understand how I felt when I didn't know, I didn't understand my feelings or anything like that. Um, but if I'd have been able to open up earlier, you know, like I said, it was only in the last year and a half I learned to talk about the things I went through as a child. If I'd managed to do that at the age of 15 or 16, then who knows, you know, where, where my life would have gone from there. Do you know what I mean? How much easier it might have been yeah. through my 20s. Obviously, we don't know sliding doors and all, all that sort of stuff. Um, but there's a real chance. I, I attempted to take my own life on three separate occasions. There was a definite possibility I wouldn't be sat here now. Um, but if I'd have opened up when I was younger, if I'd have felt able to do that, then you know it could potentially save someone's life. Um, so yeah, my my biggest advice to anyone is if if you feel able to, please just talk to anyone, whoever it might be. You know, I wouldn't say just talk to anyone, like, you yeah. know, find someone random <laughs> in the street because they might look a little bit weird, but someone you feel comfortable with or, you know, someone you feel like is a professional in that field or might have some understanding, I think that was massive for me, finding the right help. Yeah. Do you know, do you know what I mean? So be that through a doctor or um, through people in meetings who understood how I felt. But, yeah, please just open up if you're struggling.
0: Hmm. Got anything?
1: Um no I think probably now would be a good time to sort of is there any sort of recommended charities that you want to put out there and if people are out there struggling you know is that is there anybody you would recommend that they get in touch with
3: for me that it was for my own personal situation nothing anybody really said would help right so I like my mates, because I was saying the same things to everyone, like, "Oh, my life's over, I've got nothing to live for, I've totally ruined my life, there's no point in being alive anymore, I'm not going to come. I want to die, and I've got no reason to live, and nobody wants me anyway, and all this sort of I was saying the same sort of people all the time. It didn't matter what they said to me, whether it was my, my best mates, mates, the lads, like a doctor, like I had uh, a phone call, a psychiatrist, I said the same sort to him, and, and nothing anyone was saying helped because I didn't want to hear it I just wanted to say this is what I'm feeling and thinking and that's it so that's that's how it is that's what's going to happen and that's final so it doesn't matter what you say I'm not alright but it's just I think the doctors for me was obviously friends helped a lot in the end but getting medication right for me was also massive because yeah. without that as well as the other bits I don't think I'd be that way i'm now enabled me. like the certain things that i was they put me on relaxed my walking which like helped me get normality back and go out more and so i couldn't leave the house or anything like that sort of thing but yeah listen to your doctor is the biggest thing for
1: that's, me that's a yeah, that's, strong advice isn't it
3: because like like i said my mum bless her when i'm google and decided she's a, a doctor and <laughs> like, like we this. all do these yeah. days yeah and um I should have gone to a doctor and said, shall I stop taking them? He'd have said, no, absolutely don't stop taking them, but listen to your doctor. Mm. Get a good doctor and listen to him and do what he says. Don't think do you know better. Don't go on Google because Google's ridiculous and says all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Just listen to your doctor. That's I, what I'd I'd I, I did
2: that once. I tried to take myself off my antidepressants, just went cold turkey. and for the, for the first two days, I felt an awful lot better because I'd not, I had none of the side effects and I still had the half-life of the, um, the good effects from the tablets. I think it was after day three, I just absolutely went off a cliff and I felt, for want of a better word, mental, mm-hmm. like I just, I just, yeah, I was, I was, um, hyperactive. I couldn't control my thoughts. I was twitching all sorts and it, they're really powerful drugs, uh, antidepressants and things like that. So if you do it correctly and you go through a reduced plan with your doctor and stuff like that, you won't feel those massively harmful. Sort of side effects of going cold turkey. But, like with anything, if you're putting anything in your body every single day over an extended period, if your body doesn't have that, your body doesn't like a sudden change going on inside. So, yeah, always act on the advice of health professionals. But people often forget this when they're talking to their doctor as well. You're always more than welcome to have your opinion or say to them how you feel. So, for a long time in my life, I was terrified of going on to antidepressants. So I would sit there and talk to my doctor and try all the other avenues first. Hmm. And I did. I tried cognitive behavioral therapy, neuro-linguistic programming, hypnosis. I think I tried a witch doctor at some point, herbal remedies. Oh, was that? <laughs> yeah. <Very good. laughs> no, it didn't, it didn't work for me, is what I'd say. I have never, you know. Um, <coughs> what else did I try? Yeah, herbal remedies. Um, I tried various different apps and things like that. I tried meditation. Um, I actually do meditate now and it, it, it's really helpful to me and, and like calming my mind down. But I've had someone teach me how to do it rather than me just trying to sit there and achieve enlightenment within about five minutes. It, it didn't quite <laughs> work. Like that. Um, but yeah, I tried all of those avenues first. And for some people, those avenues are enough. I think my problem was when I did sort of cognitive behavioral therapy and counseling and things like that, I didn't have a good rapport with the people that I was doing it with. Mm. Um, I did have some that I did have a good rapport with, but maybe I wasn't in the right place at the time to be doing the therapy as well. But if you get the right one and they know and they understand what you're going through and stuff like that, sometimes that's enough for people before. We need to look at medications and stuff like that. But ultimately, if, if you need medication, it's nothing to be ashamed of. To say, my body is not releasing enough dopamine or serotonin, you know, to put me on a certain level. Or, you know, I can't control my impulsiveness and things like that. There's no shame in getting a little bit of help for a while through, through an antidepressant or something like that. And the idea is that once your body then gets the Kickstarter from the tablet, it should then start producing more of those things naturally. And then once you take the tablet away, it sort of kickstarted it and it, it should then be producing those levels naturally on its own some people they stay on medication for life and, and they're happy to do that but it gives them a quality of life yeah you know so why would anyone else ever be right to say to them oh you shouldn't be doing that or, or uh, if it gives you a good quality of life and that's what you need to live happily then who's anyone else to tell you that isn't what you should be doing mm.
3: um just, just to jump on that when i first started taking my medication like the for various things i'm on like i hated taking them in the morning. I'd like 11, half 11, I'd take them every day. I hated getting them out and I hated taking them. I felt like I was a loser or I was really weak and just like I hated being in a position in my life where I needed to take these to be all right. I hated it. But then when I started to get better and feel better and, and now, it's like getting me, like, like it's like I'm almost happy to take them because I know they're going to keep me okay and keep me from being where I was. So just like stick with it and don't think. Oh, well. and even when you start to feel better, a lot of people just go, "I don't need this anymore," don't they? And stop taking them. Don't do that. That's terrible, <laughs> terrible for you. But, but well,
1: you know, I, I, I can. <laughs> I could probably share some. with you I was on antidepressants for a, a short period of time, uh, sertraline, and that's I, what I'm on. one, I one of them. Yeah. I did exactly that. I want to fix. I yeah. I, I decided I don't need these. These I, I shouldn't be taking these. I'm I'm all right. I've, I fixed myself, I'm coming off of these, and I just stopped taking, I didn't take any advice from doctor, absolutely nothing, I think it was three days in, like, exactly, as it, you, I was in an absolute mess, I, I didn't know what the fucking hell we're doing, I didn't know what I was yeah. doing. I <laughs> say,
3: it's, it's two days, if you stop taking them for two days, you revert straight back to square one, it's like you never took them, yeah. that's what the doctor told me, and then you get the withdrawal from it as well, and it's just, well, what happened to you to me and, and and I, I eventually
1: did speak to the doctor, and he, and he sort of kind of by this point he'd kind of gone, Well, there's probably not much point in going back onto him now. You've done the wrong thing, but you've kind of now already come out of the other side of it. And yeah, so yeah, your body a, will bounce
2: so. your, your body is really, um, you know, resistant. To the, it, it will eventually bounce back, you know, from those sort of things. But in that meantime, it can be a really dangerous place to mm-hmm. be. I just wanted to bring it back quickly to. Carl um, you asked about organisations and things like that and charities. Um, yeah, so I'm quite fortunate because of, of working as a support worker now. I sort of liaise with a lot of sort of mental health and um, addiction-based organisations. I think uh, T- Telford Mind or Mind is based all around the UK, so Telford Mind is the one I have experience with. Um, but Mind do some really amazing work. Sorry, just hitting your microphone. Um, they do some amazing work with people and their, and their mental health um, issues. Um, again, as George said, GP is still one of one of the biggest ones. Um, IAPT. Yeah. So you can self refer to IAPT. So literally I A P T. You can go onto Google and type in IAPT.
1: We'll put all these links in the uh, in the bio with Craig and, and yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. if yeah.
2: Anybody needs them. So you can you can self refer to IAPT. So. If, if you go to a doctor and they're going to refer you for counselling, it's basically the same route. They'll refer you to counselling through the service, and they'll refer it as a doctor referring. But you can self-refer, so you can do it without going to... If you're struggling or going through a particularly difficult period, say a bereavement, or you know you need some grief counselling or anything like that, you can self-refer through IAPT. Um, and it's a really simple interface once you go onto it through Google. And just self-refer, put your details in, they'll organise a callback, understand what it is you need help with, and then they, I think they've got an app as well, that they use as well called the Silver Cloud, and stuff like that, which gives you stuff you can do in your spare time as well that um, can help with your mental health. Um, Samaritans is another one. Um, if you're really at sort of crisis point and things like that, um, please call someone before you take any drastic action. Mm. Um, Samaritans, you know, they've got some amazing people that, that are doing God's work, you know, um, on the end of those phones. Um, and they can be the genuine difference, you know, between life and death for people. Um, another one is crisis. Um, they, they're helping people, and I think you had some experience with crisis. Well, yeah, they
3: tried to put me onto them, but I was in such a state, I just didn't. Oh. But they gave me all the relevant numbers and that, so... Yeah, so... I imagine you, they could have helped, but the way I was, I was just...
2: Yeah, so crisis is another one um, that, that's so helpful when it comes to people's mental health. And Once they hit, you know, at work, if, if someone hits um, a, real, a real bad patch, um, and they're starting to make really bad decisions, and uh, not thinking rationally at all. In crisis, is someone we would look at using. Um, on a smaller scale, there's you know places so like I, I volunteered at the Ark in Shrewsbury for a while, which is a homeless day centre, and they're helping people out just on when people have hit that rock bottom and stuff like that. Just helping people with forms, doing their washing, stuff like that. So there's people that you know the, the project I'm a part of now, better tomorrow, that offer me supported housing you know, they've got mental health teams there, you know, they've got, um, an addiction team, um, and it's all run by people who have been through the project themselves or, you know, it's, um, lived experience, you know, all the people that work there. So they have a brilliant understanding of what people are going through and you have organizations like that all over the country. There's, there's ones in Birmingham that I know of. I think, um, there's there's Lindale and then there's places in, uh, Lindale and Changes, And then you've got places in Warsaw like Seasons, which is a detox centre, that are doing the same things, and you'll find them all over the country. Yeah. So I I know this is a mental health episode, but people are struggling with addiction as well. There are plenty of places locally, as well as NA and AA meetings. Um, Mm. But yeah, there's so many brilliant charities that are working with people with mental health. I just wish they had more funding. I genuinely do, because like, there's waiting times sometimes when somebody needs to see a counsellor through the NHS, and that's nothing to do with the NHS's fault whatsoever. You know, it's the standard problems that, that a lot of places have had since COVID of you know being understaffed and overwhelmed and, and things like that. I, I wish they had more funding there. You know, we have more people doing it that were able to um, help people through those. Well, the,
3: the call out of the psychiatrist, I think that took my doctor, Doctor Lonsdale, mm-hmm. homie, me. Um, again. Uh, he put it forward that I needed to sort of see a psychiatrist for what, what I was dealing with and stuff and I think it took like two or three weeks to get the phone call and it was just, it was a video call Yeah. and so like what like you say saying with, with the funding thing, if, if I'd have been able to go there and see them face to face that would help me so much more than just over like a video call because yeah. I, I'm not good on a phone, like I don't like phone calls, I don't like video calls, I can't gauge people's response and say what I want to say properly so if, The face-to-face thing would be massive for me, so, yeah, it's just a shame there's no funding for that, really.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and I think the stigma over mental health has been changing. People are talking now, and it's becoming um, a bigger... I wouldn't say it's a bigger issue, but it's something that's being focused on more and more, and there are more and more services offering to help people have a better understanding and um, all those sort of things, because people are finally starting to talk about it, you know, all that stuff that... 30, 40 years ago, people weren't talking about because you were seen as soft or mm. whatever it might be. Um, people are, are getting the help that they need. And there, are, there are more and more of these organisations. There's more people going into those fields and wanting to help. Um, it's just a case of uh, they just still need that support because people can't always afford private counselling. You know, you know I, I did some private counselling for a while, and yes, I could get a counsellor that day if I needed one, but I had to have the money available to to do that, And a lot of people don't have that, you know, um, private detox from, uh, um, alcohol or drug abuse can cost you up to like three grand for a week. Do you know, just to stay there for a week. And that's because of also some of the stuff that they need and the, the medications and stuff they need to put you safely through a detox. But you know, The average person, especially if they've been struggling with alcoholism and addiction, but they've been spending all their money on drugs and booze, doesn't have three grand to go and spend to get themselves into detox. They have to go on really long waiting lists. So while they're on a waiting list, they're still having to drink or use to prevent themselves from having horrendous withdrawal. And the whole time they're doing that, they're, they're still dicing with their life. You know, If they've made that decision they want to stop, my genuine belief is we need to find a way of being able to give people the options to stop there and then you know if they make that decision because it might be too late you know in eight nine weeks time um but the people that are in these charities at the moment are doing amazing amazing work and uh, thank you to each and every one of them you know.
1: I, th- on. I was just going to say i think I've, i think we're naturally sort of starting to wrap it up is there anything we should have asked you that that you wanted to mention that we, that we haven't got in or
3: Needs to do a couple more shout-outs. <laughs> go <laughs> for it, a, Absolutely go fine, for it, mate. Go for it. Dan Perks. Danny Perks. wagonhead.
1: He,
3: <laughs> <laughs> he'll hate that, but don't cut it out. He'll, um, <laughs> yeah, he, he did a lot to help me. Like, in the beginning, he was sort of trying to help me with getting somewhere to live and somewhere to stay. And, like, he did loads of, like, paperwork for me, all sorts of things. He really helped me big time. And he's, he's kept in touch with me. Like, when you going back to work, when you come back to work, this and that. So, he's a top guy. He's... He really helped me a lot and he knows that so and also emma farlow who i'm living with now she's another reason i'm still here and i've said it to her she's another reason i'm still alive really because like she had no idea what she was getting into when i moved in with her mm-hmm. and i didn't really because i got worse while i was there and so she's gone from oh yeah he, he's you know his relationship broke up he would come live with me for a bit and then it'll be off and it'll be we'll have a crack but i was completely mental like just <laughs> not all right like she'd be at home after work and I'd just be walking in the kitchen back and forth all night sort of thing and anyone else could have and would have probably gone I didn't sign up for this mate you're going to have to go because I can't cope with this uh, yeah like at one point <laughs> she had like a pair of pink Crocs No pink Crocs in the, in the kitchen like it sort of links into a living room and she'd come back the one day and I was doing my pacing dripping with sweat no top on pyjamas and her pink Crocs just <laughs> flying around the kitchen <laughs> <laughs> it's funny now, but, like, I weren't all right then, like, and it didn't fit me. I just wedged my feet in them and just carried on. But she could have gone, this is wild, y- you're going to have to go to camp, but she didn't. And then when I got also my supervisor from work, he kept having meetings with me to make sure I was okay, and he kept ringing me every now and then to see all right and stuff. Dean Fields, he's all right, I like, you <laughs> know.
1: Um, I suppose oh, the next question then is... I missed some of them. I was
3: going on to some of
1: How many miles do you think you can get out a pair of a, a pair of Crocs then? <laughs>
3: and then knock-off Crocs as well, so they're oh. sturdy-like,
2: oh. even better. You've given her a shout-out and then revealed that she buys knockoff off Crocs. Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. everyone <laughs> buys knock <crocs>, <laughs> You give and you take away.
3: But yeah, um, that was it. When I went to see went to see Miss so Supervisor on one of the occasions, because he'd get me to go to Starbucks and have a drink and a chat, he gave me a load of paperwork, and I think it was from Mind, a load of that stuff from work. So they obviously knew it wasn't okay. They got me all this paperwork, and I got back and I just chucked it on the kitchen side, sort of thing. And like, because I couldn't focus on anything, I couldn't focus. I couldn't look at my phone or anything. And I'd come down in the morning, and she'd get it all out, open it, look for some that would help me, highlight it, and so I'd see that and read that particular thing. And she'd loads of bits like that that just sort of really helped me. And I knew she she cared. And like, and she'd leave me notes like like checklists because I wasn't doing anything. I was just walking, like like I wasn't showering or brushing my teeth or anything, it's gross, but I wasn't showering for like over a month and I wasn't cleaning my teeth and I was just, I yeah. couldn't look after myself, couldn't do, cook for myself, nothing. And, um, she'd do like a checklist, like brush your teeth, have a shower, pick your dogs, mess up, or all, all that stuff, blah, 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 blah. If you can do one of these things today, that's a win. And I'd, I'd, do, I'd do it, like even though it was like, it, I almost couldn't do it, I'd go and do one of these things and I'd, I'd be like, oh, that's, I feel better a bit better now. So she's an angel, Emma.
0: Yeah, no, so. great. Dan, what, what about you? Have you got anyone that you'd like to uh, quick mention for? Probably so many, is
2: it? Yeah, there's so many people that I'm so grateful for. You know, my, my sponsor, um, who's helped guide me through my journey of sobriety. You know, um, the best part of 14 years I spent drinking and using drugs and once those go away, I needed someone to help me learn who I am. Yeah, new identity. New identity, feelings why I'm doing certain things. He's been there through, through every step of the way. So his name's John. Um, really fantastic bloke. And he, he goes out of his way massively to help so many suffering addicts. Um, as well as my friend Greg, who, who's the one that came and found me, you know, in the field. And um, he was the initial starting and changed my life. Um, I would also say my ex-partner, Ree. Um, you know, we, we're still friends. We, you know, we still, we still chat. On occasion, um, she, yeah, she's an angel. So, you know, I, I have this genuine belief sometimes, that I, although she'd probably resent it if she was an angel sent for that right reason, but I, have, I, have, I believe that people come into your life at the right time sometimes when you absolutely need them the most. And she'd probably resent the fact that she had to be the person yeah, to why, go into Yeah, she's there going, why me? And <laughs> I always say this to her. That I, I say to her that you really dropped the ball. I was like, why did you pick me? There were so many red flags. <laughs> you know what I mean and she's like yeah but I thought I could turn you into a green flag and yeah. <laughs> and it took a lot more work than all but yeah um, she was absolutely amazing and helped save my life my parents mm. and my sister um, same like, she probably mention
3: my family shouldn't
2: I, really <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys <laughs> <laughs> um, with my sister like for, for a lot of her life I wasn't the big brother that I I should have been you know I'm five years older than my sister and she was probably more supportive to me than I was able to be to her but we have a brilliant relationship now and it's the same with my parents I have a brilliant relationship with them now. and I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, All the lads at the rugby club, so I came to Telford and I, I, at Telford Hornets and I sent a message to the website and I said, look, I I haven't played rugby for a couple of years um, and I've I've not been well, you know, uh, and I explained that I'm in recovery and stuff like that but I said, I used to play at a high level and if you can get me back anywhere near that, you know, you might have a half-decent player on your hands and I'd love to come down and stuff, and they were straight on the phone. And the amount of stuff they did for me, they got me sponsored straight away, helped me buy boots, kit, all of that sort of stuff, because I I barely had any of that stuff. I I didn't have a penny to my name or anything like that. Um, And as I said, I turned up like nine stone, green, and they must have thought, who's who's this lad? Do you know what I mean? And the, the amount of support they've given me, and now that I'm trying to give back to the club as well, you know, I'm coaching and I, I helped coach the Colts over the last year and stuff like that, and helping people with their mental health at the club and stuff like that. It's, it's amazing. Um, but my biggest thing I would say is if you know anyone that's struggling, please don't ever think that you can't make a difference. You know, you don't need to be, as I've said, a qualified health professional or anything like that. The smallest thing can make the biggest difference is just checking in on someone, as George has said could be the difference between them being here tomorrow and not, you know. So if in doubt, just check in with your mates, check in with your family. If you haven't seen them for a while, if they're acting a little bit different, just take that extra time when you're asking them how they are, you know, not just how are you, just really how are you.
3: Yeah, because it might take that for them to say...
0: That's a good, actually.
3: I'm, I'm, I'm not all right, actually, I, I need to talk. Because a lot of people like, yeah, because I don't like, yeah, I'm alright, I'm saying, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. we all we'll do really. it as blokes, though, doesn't it? Like, where the, the only acceptable answer to someone going, "You're right," is, "Yeah, yeah you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah, you, yeah, you. yeah. <laughs> exactly." And it, and it is like that for so long, I'm like because then like if it, there's the whole thought in your head that if someone goes, "You're right," and you go, "No," and they're going to go, "Oh, <laughs> don't have to deal with <laughs> this." Wish i asked. Yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you do hear things that like, you know, um, but as I say, I would rather sit there and talk to you for hours if you're if you're struggling than to think you're sat at home on your own, you know, with your head spinning and not making sense of anything. Um, So yeah, please, please, please talk. And if you know someone that's struggling, you can make a difference. And you don't know where that ripple effect's gonna go. So you don't know where that ripple effect can go. You know, you help one person then they go on to like, like has happened to me, someone's helped me. I've then taken on a load of qualifications now and I'm in a position where I'm able to help other people. I'm coaching rugby. And stuff like that. And then hoping in the future some of those people, you know, f- if three or four of them then go on to do similar things, you know, you're creating a, not, not a dynasty of people helping people, but there's a, a real ripple effect yeah. to it, you know. It's, you know You've got to
3: talk about it because, like, for me, I've always known, like, obviously mental health is real sort of thing. A lot of people are like, oh, depression isn't real. Like, you're just sad, just get, get on. Like, my dad to an extent was like that typical like northern bloke just oh you're finding what you are doing all that <laughs> just get on with it what's wrong with you and they'd be like well i've had relationships break up and i've seen people have them break down and no one's reacted like this so what are you doing get it together but i've always known it's a th- it's a thing that people struggle but until i was where i was i didn't realize what your brain can do to you now it can make you feel and totally change you as a person so it, it's massive to talk about it and and if you are struggling some something ever so slightly wrong with you just get out and talk to people because it There's no any good it can do.
0: Mm. Yeah, so I think, like like you say, you know, we've come to an end there. Um, And I just want to talk now to the person watching this and and listening to this. You know, it's really over to you. So if you are struggling, if if all these stories have resonated with you, just understand that there is help out there. There are places to go. You might not be able to see it or engage with that stuff right now, but there, there, there will be stuff around there. And if people, you know if the people around you when they ask you how are you doing just be honest mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. it might not be the right place the right time but even if you just key something up and say look at some point i just i could do it with a little bit of a word and a little bit of a a release you know whatever um you got to do it you got to do it and um and then the other thing is if there's other people around you that are displaying behavior that isn't normal for them because i know you know we're we're in the world of rugby there's some nutters around you know what I mean but you know no, it's if it's not normal for them then you know keep keep checking in and, and, and look after your fucking teammates because uh, you know there's too many young lads taking their own lives and we need to we need to fucking cut that out so yeah. it's been sorry Carl
1: if I was took just trying government. to probably say exactly the same as what go you were going to say yeah. was, so I,
0: one more I, shout out fucking no. okay, <laughs> hell one more. George one more
3: go on <laughs> Get the camera on me. <laughs> oh yeah, go. Sorry, mate. Sorry,
0: go go.
1: Belly belly. <laughs> she never give up. Right, <laughs> well, guys. It's thank you for sharing your stories. Um, it's it, like I say. I've, I think it's been incredibly brave what you've said, and you know how honest and open you've been. Um, and you know, if this helps one person, then it's been absolutely worthwhile, yeah. has not it? Mm-hmm. Right. So so thanks, thanks, cheers for, thanks for,
2: for coming on. No, thanks for having us and giving us a platform to be able to you know as I say I'm no social media guru and stuff like that so having a platform to be able to speak to about it is is really important so thank you yeah, yeah
0: thank you. Um, we've had the privilege of talking to some amazing people this series you know mm. we did an episode before about all the best clips and all that uh, tonight is the point in which I feel the most privileged yeah. you know just just to hear your story and you know and, and for you sharing that so thanks from me Um, good effort Carl lining this up because it's been an absolute belter so for what it's worth lads I think you're absolute fucking heroes you know keep doing what you're doing and and I'll definitely you know keep an eye on on what you're up to and and seeing the effect you're having on on other people I'll leave it to you Carl to do the mic drop
1: (laughs) do you know what I think because these guys have been such 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 inspiration I think on this occasion we'll just let you have the last sort of 30 seconds
3: can we get
0: one of them t-shirts? There's <laughs> a few people want these. We're, we're working t-shirts. on it. Yeah, oh, I think
2: yeah. every every guest should get a t-shirt. Well,
0: you know? we have got a little. We have got the a little gift. Shit prize we? is coming. Yeah, yeah for, for next series, every guest's going to get a, a little shit prize. Yeah,
2: but yeah. Uh, no, I've, I've absolutely. It. It's a real professional sir well.
0: It
3: is, it's mega. Can't yeah. believe it. Thought we'd be in a little box garage and Did just you? dithering freezing is that cold.
2: Yeah. Nah. Um. Thank you for having us on, guys. And um. As, as Carl said, you know, if you can just help one person, um, we really appreciate it. I'm yeah. really glad, you know, George has come along and, and sort of got involved in this journey with me of, you know, sharing the story, um, spread the message. Um, you know, we, we need to pick each other up, you know, not, not putting anyone else down, you know. Um, pick each other up and let's, let's be the best we can be.
0: Nice one. Cheers. Cheers, lads. Well yeah. done. That's the final whistle for this week's episode of the Rubber League Outsiders. We hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to follow us on social media and share this podcast with your friends. And as always, if you have a story to tell, a club to plug, or a player that deserves recognition, we want to hear from you. So until next time on the Rubber League Outsiders, take care.